it's so crazy to just like watch the Oscars. It's in and out of your system. And now it's just time to move on with your cinephilic journey, kind of. Like it's a, it's, it's really a, for some people, the distraction lasts one evening. For some people, the distraction lasts a few weeks. Like leading the noms come out and you play a little catch up. I, I would say that's what like your average moviegoer who goes to the, in a non pandemic time, goes to the movies every couple Fridays and checks out some new stuff. They play catch-up. Their Oscar fever lasts a couple weeks. There are also the freaks who make it a living. And, you know, Oscar fever runs all year from them, uh, or for them, rather. This year, it lasted a full day for me. I, w- I was thinking about the nominations, and I tried to watch a little mank. And then we just watched that absolute shit show together. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I claim not to be, you know, a fan of the award ceremony and then, you know, I feel like I'm not, but it's like, damn, I'm missing the Dolby Theater. Like where's where's yeah. the classic venue? This doesn't feel this feels dark. This feels grim. We're in like a train station and <laughs> I don't know. It just seems it seems fake. Like all all these movies seem seem Mickey Mouse to me, man. Yeah, no. I mean I think I, I kind of like hate it and think it's stupid every year, but it's like the Super Bowl of movies. It's the big mainstream movie event. You know people who know you as like someone into it are going to ask you about it. There are people talking about it. You want to see. I had my excuse for a couple of years of working this job where like one of the requirements was like Saturday and Sunday nights, no matter what, I had to work, you know. So I didn't watch the Oscars for a couple of years and I thought I was like going to be fine with it because this job was kind of during the peak of me like watching you know, exploring the world of cinema, if you will. So I was like, oh, who cares? Totally missed it. Totally was just like, oh, I miss the 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 gallantry, the the mugging to camera during uncomfortable jokes that don't land. The uncomfortable jokes that don't land themselves. The the really wonky like production numbers that are much more like theater than film. Uh, and the the nods to old timey Hollywood that are always so funny because it's just thinking about the person who made that little production number like really that's what you took away from old movies <laughs> that's kind of what I'm thinking every year this year um, that was that was just so bad in general so apparently they wanted to make it look like a movie and it kind of looked like the Steven Soderbergh movie The Laundromat it kind of looked like that one a little bit. It it just has the ugliest haze to it, that digital 2.2 to 1 aspect ratio where it's not like the spherical lenses or whatever. It's like the cropped down, uh, you know, from widescreen into mini scope. And it looked like a fake movie and all the clips from the nominations looked like fake movies. And it was an overall terrible ceremony. But the, the rigmarole, the dog shit, the craziness, the... The whodunit factor did return at the very end where tradition was broken. They gave best actor last instead of best picture. And uh, when everyone thought it would be a tribute to the late, great Chadwick Boseman, it ended up just being a a phone it in, give it to Anthony Hopkins moment. Give it to a picture of Anthony Hopkins (laughs) uh, who who wasn't even there to receive it. It's just like, here's what Anthony Hopkins looks like. He won the award. We'll accept it for him. And yeah, just straight end. And it's just kind of funny because it's like with the like La La Land thing, like you get to see people's reaction to the whole debacle or whatever. I feel like the the people involved are just going to 
just keep it moving just you mm-hmm. know keep it just business as usual and uh because this one isn't like a quote-unquote mistake like yeah that. it's just like everyone knows it's a mistake yeah yeah i mean especially when they structure the whole show around it so it's like it being kind of like shoddy and it makes sense the way things ended up just like it being like a like a you know 50 percent oscars it just kind of ends with that wonky ending yeah i still like miss that they like don't have like a host anymore like i kind of like someone bombing dumb stand-up comedy and like no you miss out on getting provocateurs like seth mcfarlane and ricky gervais (laughs) their hot takes of uh of the movies of the year and it's just i don't know it, it makes it feel more formless yeah and like just the massive liberal bullshit even with like uh someone like you know billy crystal who i absolutely despise just the novelty of having really bad jokes about movies like it's movies big night out you gotta have all like the you gotta have all the pleasantries there the, like the Say what you will about Billy Crystal's musical numbers, which were absolute dog shit. That's what I'll say about them. At least they feed into that uh, that big showbiz feeling. I feel like this one, Soderbergh and co. really want, and Steven Soderbergh produced the Oscars. Uh, they wanted to make it feel like you're kind of just like hanging out there. Uh, and like one thing I noticed. They kept talking about the jobs people had before they made it in show business. You know, this costume designer was doing makeup on himself in a toilet. This <laughs> this screenwriter was working at a restaurant. No, my favorite was when they like an Aaron Sorkin. He was popping popcorn and ushering people to their seats as, as his first job. It's yeah. just like. I don't. It's just like who cares? Who fucking yeah. cares if Aaron Sorkin popped popcorn? Like it's just yeah. <laughs> and it's all capped off by I almost called him Kevin Spacey there. Uh, Brian Cranston just desperately crawling back into the arms of the liberal critical consensus, trying to be reclaimed uh, once again as being a good actor since he clearly hasn't been for the last decade or so. Going Kevin Spacey, let me be frank mode, talking about all the important safety of COVID and the beautiful workers who all stood behind him for the end <laughs> of the speech. And I don't know, man, that's the the like the liberal political pandering has always been bad at the Oscars. Uh, and it's also been conservative political pandering in the past. The classic Michael Moore clip is a great example of that, where he pooh poos the the war on terror and his boot off stage. <laughs> uh, but this one just felt like such a hilarious cacophony of, you know, uh, the revolution sponsored by MasterCard to put it blatantly. Uh, yeah. And just the, it was, it was just very funny to me on the whole. It seems like a lot of these, these actors, these directors, they, they really want to change the world. They really want the world Look, to we change. We got a lot of work to do. Uh, yeah, a lot of people saying we got a lot of work to do, and it's. I just. I. I wonder what that change is. That's all I wonder. <laughs> what do you think that change is? I think that change is everyone is liberated from full time employment. It's a permanent uh, gig economy <laughs> where you have unlimited freedom and choice to go to any role at Uber Eats, uh, Grubhub, DoorDash, whatever you want. Perfect. That's awesome. Everyone has the everyone's cell phone will come preloaded with a folder uh, that just says hustle and it's all of your jobs. <laughs> you have 12 jobs and you just choose which one you want to work that day. 
Actually, anyway. sounds cool. Uh, <laughs> look, we're building a new neoliberal future. I'm, into I'm just, it. I'm accepting my part in it. I'm buying it. Yeah, I'm cashing <laughs> in. We're talking about the Oscars, though. Well, because it's Oscars Big Night Out. Uh, but we, we, we wanted to talk about one of these Best Picture winners. What won Best Picture this year? Nomad Land. Terrible. Yeah, bad not, movie. Uh, not not a movie I'm particularly a fan of. Probably the worst Best Picture winner since Parasite. <laughs> 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 no, uh, Parasite was better than Nomadland. I'm not going to play that game because Green Book was better than both of them. But uh, <laughs> yeah, whatever whatever happened to movies like Green Book? Yeah, <laughs> I didn't see any of those. I'd like complain about digitally affected 2.0 to one cinematography. <laughs> <laughs> We wanted to talk about one of the best best picture winners ever, right? And I think this is one that I thought would be on top of all of our lists. And then I found out you guys hadn't even seen it before. No, no. I mean, I, I you know, my my Clint fascination. It's you know, it's been not like it's somewhat recent, being in like the past three or four years. So I didn't really have those classics to build upon. I'm kind of finding my own path here and with sometimes with movies like that the ones that are like the big giants sometimes i like to save them for a little later makes sense yeah. i still haven't seen bridges of madison county and i'm waiting until i see every single clint eastwood movie until i do there you go but you might not ever you know you might I not will. find out what true love is until you watch that movie oh, so yeah. you might want to watch it soon i'm not holding out hope on that <laughs> unforgiven by clint eastwood it's his 1992 film that won the hearts of america <laughs> Uh, it's it's a revisionist western as it at its core, which calls into question the myth of Eastwood himself. Uh, you know, as we've talked about on this podcast, Eastwood has been interested in his own mythology and his own iconography since his first directorial effort in Play Misty for Me, uh, where his radio show makes him such a god that Jessica Walter wants to kill slash fuck him. Murder. Murder sex. Murder sex him. She wants to murder sex him. And many women want to murder sex him throughout his career. But the, in this one, the murder sexing is kind of reversed. Uh, so let's let's get into the plot of Unforgiven before I get more into the thematics. He plays William Money. And William Money has repented for his sins as hard as he can. Uh, because in the old days, he was the baddest killer around. An angel blessed him in the form of his late wife, who could only stay with him for a few years to start a family together before passing away. And by the grace of God and that dead wife, he raises good Christian children on a farm, nice and normal, no longer a bad boy killer, living the way a man should. Until... Until he hears about two cowboys who cut up a prostitute over in Big Whiskey. They cut her up real bad. And he teams up with his old partner and a, a hotshot young gun to collect the bounty on the two cowboy killers. Uh, despite the best efforts of the corrupt bad boy sheriff, Little Bill. Uh, no matter what he has to say about this bounty getting collected. So... That's basic setup of the movie. There's a lot of stuff in between. Uh, but how'd you guys feel about this? Well, when you read the plot like straight off like that, and like from my loose understanding of what Unforgiven was about, it seems like it's a uh, like more of a classical western. Yeah. Like you expect that it's gonna 
I don't know. I don't want to say have uh, more action than it does because there are a lot of like really exciting set pieces. But even knowing Clint's like fascination with myth and sort of breaking that down, I was insanely surprised by like just how like I don't know kind of pathetic his character is yeah. in the very beginning and just like he can't even fucking get on a damn horse <laughs> it's like that's such a funny thing to have for his character to do in a western and uh, i don't know i was blown away by this like eastwood is playing the hits in terms of all of his favorite thematic concerns and it's just i don't know a beautiful looking movie with like sensational performances like Hackman in this goes oh off. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of it too. And like Eastwood. Yeah. Like you guys said, revision, revisionism or kind of like, like uh, examining this mythology of like heroes or whatever. He loves doing this. And yeah, the patheticness of Clint's character is, is very interesting. Like it's uh very like the downtrodden, quality of him and contrast that with like kind of like uh this young buck who wants to murder people mm-hmm. and, you know this uh fake fake gangster you know as they well and, and you know it's funny and like clint has you know done this theme a lot and a lot and it's kind of like uh i don't know it reminds me of like rappers in their songs telling people like you know don't play with guns like that's you know that stuff's not cool you know what i mean well you know he gets to you know do some cool stuff with the guns yeah. and whatnot but it's clint did that so you didn't have to <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly and it is it is like it is crazy how like clint it kind of feels like he's closing the book on the western here mm-hmm. kind of because it is like the thing about the western right and why i don't know i find a lot of modern westerns i, I just don't connect to them it's because like they're not made within this framework where like Western life or like the way people lived in Westerns is like relevant. It's not really relevant to us Mm. anymore. And so like, I don't know. I think Clint closes it. You know, I think it's, I think Clint closed the book and he hasn't done one since, right? Hasn't mm. done a Western since? I don't think so. No, he. the thing is he's done his like urban Western since a True. lot. He, I think the influence of the Western will always stay with him. Something like the Mule even mm-hmm. or Gran Torino especially. Uh, it, you know, it, it's just this modern context of it where Unforgiven, yeah, it's the last time we have that context for that like post-Civil War expansion, you know, just living in the mud life. Uh, And I think this is definitely the most brutal, like, achievement in that. I know he reteamed with his production designer for High Plains Drifter, and you kind of feel that sense of history, almost like, not quite like those late Ford Westerns, but in a similar way where he's been making Westerns, and for... Ford, it was like with John Wayne or with other actors, you know, for Eastwood, it's like he's been making Westerns about himself <laughs> for decades and decades at this point, you know, and so that that sense of history is really deeply felt, even just like in the character names, like uh, the, that gangster wannabe kid that you're talking about, uh, the the name for him is the, the Shoalfield kid because of how he shoots his Shoalfield and, uh, you know, uh, Morgan Freeman, Ned Logan is his old partner who it, it's such like a classic kind of trope in genre cinema, almost like getting back together with your old partner for one last job. And uh, like JT, you said, when you state the, the goings on of the plot plainly, it seems more classical than revisionist. But 
I think it's the the approach that makes you call into ev- call everything into question. Yeah, because it's like they're going through with the motions of a classical Western plot, mm-hmm. but Eastwood and Freeman just like at every turn <laughs> are like either failing, like I don't know, not really succeeding at it right away, or yeah. just extremely hesitant about going. Like they're not. Their hearts aren't in like killing these men, even though they sort of have the guise of like, oh, this is a moral cause. Like we're mm-hmm. like we're get we're doing it for the money, but it's like these are bad guys. Like I don't know, even though they can absolve themselves of their sins with that cover, there's no real glee in the journey. Yeah, and it's it's yeah, like they they're not exactly happy to be doing this, and like kind of like the the comforts of like, you know, a John remove or Western specifically, you kind of have, uh, you know, maybe like a buddy repertoire between Morgan Freeman and Clint Eastwood. Not really there. Morgan Freeman actually dips out yeah. kind of two thirds of the way of their journey or kind of like, uh, I don't know, like you get a sense of like the community in town and like usually there'll be like a cool, you know, like a bar people go to and there's mm. people singing there. The bars here are very dark, desolate, Usually Gene Hackman is kicking the shit out of someone's face <laughs> while you're there or something like that. Like you, you, you walk around the corner and the, the town sheriff is just, you know, brutally going yeah. off on someone. So it's like kind of like the the things, the classic things like a camaraderie or like the cool gun play or something like that. Like are any nothing's like uh, meant to be fun here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's denying you the pleasures. I think that's part of the revisionism there is he's denying you the very basic pleasures that a Western brings you along the way. The gunplay is one really good thing you bring up. So many Westerns have a scene to purely demonstrate how good the lead character is with a six shooter or with a rifle. Uh, And so, you know, you think about the first 30 minutes of Winchester 73, obviously that's like one of the ultimate gun fetish Westerns, but the first 30 minutes are just a shooting contest, you know? Uh, But in this one, the first time you see Eastwood shoot, he just misses six times. And uh, his kids say to each other, like, did Pa used to kill people? And they're kind of confused because he can't even hit a can, you know? And then he finally pulls out the shotgun and blows it away. And the other shooting demonstration is the Shoalfield kid who can't see past 50 yards, you know, and is just exposing his limited range and his nearsightedness or whatever, farsightedness. I don't know. Uh, I, look, I got perfect vision. I don't, I don't, <laughs> don't got to worry about those kind of words. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it really is a denial of so many pleasures, even the wide open landscape shots. They're they're beautiful no mm-hmm. don't get me wrong but the textures of them like the compositions are classically beautiful but they just have these like dry like trickly textures to them like it seems so cold out even when it's like bright out it just has this weird way that the sun hits everything and i i don't know it's a it's it's an icy looking film it's like every frame looks like it could hurt you you know it's not shot it's not shying away from the brutality of the old west that's another way it denies the simple pleasures of it i mean also think about how the movie starts out you just see one of the prostitutes just getting just you know some hard sex she's getting railed yeah and it's just like i mean i don't know like kind of the way old westerns work you know you 
roll up to the saloon, make some wisecracks. You, you know, you <laughs> you scamper off and you scamper on back. Here we get to see the stark reality of that. We yeah. get to see um, the, the not sex so, and the sexual violence. The sexual violence, yeah, that immediately follows after. Not exactly as a happy, you know, go lucky there. I really like the way that that opening scene is shot. I mean, the the bookends of this film at the whorehouse. Uh, you know, first with the prostitute getting cut up and then, of course, the big finale at the end. It's really dark and he's using uh, a lot of foreground stuff to kind of muddy up the frame in a really dark way so that, you know, you're you're focusing your eyes just on the very far corner of the cinemascope frame often, almost using it like a silent filmmaker would use an iris, uh, especially when she is getting cut up it's presented just like that like an iris and i don't know it's like your uh like the effect of putting your hands over your eyes because it's too brutal to look and he i think eastwood is really great at showing that brutality in a really jagged way well like i then you know you describing that reminds me of when uh what's the british serial what is the english, english bob, bob. The, the english bob <laughs> when we when english bob and his biographer are uh donnie from fraser donnie from fraser <laughs> are in uh you know gene hackman's prison or whatever and kind of that whole uh charade hackman does by giving the biographer the gun and mm-hmm. the way like it's uh you know hackman is framed from the jail cell all the shots we get from the jail cell kind of i don't know it's like a perfect uh way of like really showing how like kind of scary and intimidating he, yeah. like it's like the way like uh, like a villain in a western usually is portrayed it's usually someone who's like kind of ornery ornery maybe someone on the war path someone who's losing control someone who's you know fast with the bullet uh, you know usually a hothead whereas hackman is just like very vile in like a way that's just <laughs> com- like completely um like cold and calculated yeah and just he's uh, not very like good though like honestly like he he can kick the shit out of an innocent guy but like he doesn't showcase his skills whatsoever he's a terrible carpenter he builds (laughs) his own house and he has the shittiest house in the old west which is hilarious yeah well i mean he's also a sheriff of a town that restricts guns and then he has like half half the people there have guns yeah. <laughs> and are just working for him so yeah you're right he is not very good at, he, he's going pure cowards route he's you know taking all the guns in town <laughs> and then pointing them at you and then kicking the shit out of you so it's like yeah there's no like uh i don't know there's no like g- goliath type figureness to him like he's just a he's a pure fucking scab I also like the biographer character, uh, Donnie from Frasier, Sal Rubinek, who is in a few Westerns, weirdly enough. He's in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs as well. Uh, He is the biographer of English Bob, this bad boy who comes in and gets really pissed off. You know, you know, he gets people really pissed off because he starts gloating about the queen and talking bad <laughs> about the president. And I, I love English Bob's first like 30, but it's just like, oh, I think he'd be a lot stronger if you had a king and a queen. And all <laughs> a, you know, people people wouldn't assassinate them like they would a president. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm, Such a funny uh, English dandy <laughs> thing to affect. <laughs> I'm not a very, you know, patriotic man, so to speak. But when I hear like people talking like, oh, Britain's like Britain's better than America because I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, you know, 1776 mode. Like, I'm just like, come on, man. 
It's come on, America, no, English, America rules. The English fucking suck. <laughs> yeah, fuck the English. I mean, yeah. that's what I think is. I mean, Hackman's character is so interesting to me, and especially the I think the way your relationship changes with him, because I think you you're sort of on more neutral footing, like after the beginning, because it's like he's. I mean he doesn't really punish the men, but he's like sort of doing like his explanation is, Oh, I don't want more violence to beget violence. But the way he follows out justice throughout clearly shows he doesn't really give a shit about (laughs) that. But then it's like, Oh no, you English Bob is painted as such an asshole. And it's always enjoyable to watch an Englishman get the shit beat out of him. (laughs) And then I, I don't know. I think, he unfolds into something far more sinister and cold. And I think that relates to like Eastwood's sort of libertarian perspective as well on like justice. And like, Mm. I don't know, he's kind of breaking down uh, the myth making that English Bob is doing, but also propping it up for himself then. Yeah. It's almost like that dynamic of Richard Jewell of uh, the, the media and the government being in bed together where it's like, uh, he, he he's the overreach of the government despite it being just like a sheriff of a small town that's like the western representation of it but then he steals Sal Rubinek away from English Bob and he has his own biographer uh, printing the legend as it were as it happens you know little Bill is just telling him all these stories about how awesome of a sheriff he is and <laughs> Sal Rubinek's just writing it up you know and so that you know by that point Clint has fully uh, painted little Bill as just like the most evil man ever because it's both government overreach and the biased media <laughs> yeah well that's yeah that's yeah like the I, I found the biographer character to be very interesting and probably like the most the the mo- like kind of the part a part in this movie that differentiates from like a lot of westerns i've seen and it's it kind of is like that's interesting you kind of maybe tying it to the media i kind of maybe maybe a little bit more simplistically minded i'm like is that kind of like supposed to be like clint mocking like an audience surrogate mm. like kind of people attracted to like these kind of uh you know larger than life even if they're evil you know kind of personas and like how he's kind of fascinated by clint at the end uh, you know when clint's killed everyone you know what i mean Mm -hmm. he's finally interested in you know what clint's doing and uh you know clint's uh you know being the savvy man he is you know tells him to run off (laughs) because that that shit's over he's closing the book on that type of exactly Well, to talk about the ending, as you said, uh, Morgan Freeman kind of dips away. He's like, you know, I, I've had enough of this. I'm going back home. And it's, again, denying the pleasures of the buddy movie, denying the pleasures of the buddy movie again when it's time for the Shulfield kid to kill one of these cowboys. He does. And then it's supposed to be like life lesson time, bonding under the tree. And he's just drinking out of cowardice. Like, I can't believe I killed a guy. Uh, like, yeah, he's just like, he wants to fucking die. Yeah. Uh, and it's just denying you all these pleasures. They finally get back to the whorehouse and Morgan Freeman is dead outside of it. And you just know what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, it's just like you never even were going to shit yourself. Yeah, I was going to say, sorry for, for the, the magic of editing. And we're back as I had to take an emergency break to do to my toilet what Clint Eastwood does to the whorehouse at the end of this movie. (laughs) Jesus. He paints the walls. (laughs) (laughs) Much like, more like High Plains Drifter. I painted the town brown. (laughs) 
Jesus Christ. That's what they come in for, is <laughs> the poop talk. <laughs> the poo-poo humor, yes. But anyway, we're talking about the very end of Unforgiven for this very end segment of this episode. <laughs> As we said, Clint Eastwood sees Morgan Freeman outside and... Um, the Schofield kid, man, he's too much of a bitch to do anything. Clinton knows he's going to have to take it into his own hands. He rolls in. Such an awesome move. Everyone's just hanging out, and you just see his shotgun kind of pull up on the edge of the frame as he pulls it up. And everyone's just like, oh, shit. That's that bad motherfucker we knew from back in the day. Uh, are, are you are, are you William Money, killer of women and children? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> They should have had him <laughs> do worse. Well, I, I don't know. That's I, can't, I don't know I can't, what's I, worse I, than I, killing I, women and wh- children, Malcolm. I can't. I, I was going to like. That's not a bit I could expand on yeah. whatsoever. I mean, it's pretty <laughs> unforgivable. Yeah. 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 I mean, if they really, if, if you the, really want to be really unforgivable, you yeah. Know. A flurry of gunfire is unleashed, and it's one of the most like chaotic, almost nonsensically cut together action scenes in Eastwood that I can recall. It's. Every time I watch it, it's all over the place, and it's not really until after when he says, uh, when the Schulfield kid says, you shot little Bill, man, that I remember that little Bill did get shot and killed. Like, Mm -hmm. I keep thinking, he shot and killed a bunch of other guys, little Bill's going to come back for more, but it's like, you don't even get a nice lingering shot on dead Gene Hackman, necessarily. You see him die, you don't linger on it, though, like you would in a classic movie where the death of the villain is a big thing. It's again, it's that revisionism, the denial of the classic pleasures for something more internal, thinking about what this means to Eastwood returning to his kids who were busy separating hogs while he was out killing people for a couple of weeks and how he's going to even live with himself like that after he has repented and brought forth this new life in the wake of his wife, uh, in the wake of his wife's death. To, to live this positive Christian lifestyle with his two kids. But, you know, back to the old him. How is he going to ever forgive himself? And we end on that shot where we started with him digging next to the tree next to his house. And just that perfectly flat horizon line. What a masterful landscape shot that is to open and close the books on the genre. No, yeah, I, I really like how things, you know, start to... Um, wrap up in this movie and like uh, kind of you know going back to the scene where Eastwood and the kid are waiting by the tree and uh, you know the kid is bemoaning like I killed someone I feel so awful like how can I live with this and Eastwood you know he doesn't have the answer so he says uh, take a drink kid like keep yeah. drinking <laughs> and and uh, it really is interesting how this yeah it is kind of it does kind of feel almost like a death march even though like we know it's not going to be Clint's death but there's no like tension like that like oh hackman might come and like shoot you know what i mean it is just like clint comes in and he just mows these motherfuckers down yeah like, and it's like then and it's just a it's a very like very brutal it's portrayed in like very brutally and it's like yeah a, it's like oh is this what you wanted you would kill some people well <laughs> here you fucking go you wanted it darker right yeah, yeah and it's like yeah like just this dark CD bar and it is like it's a lot of these people are like spectators too and it, <laughs> yes. it, and it, and it's like Clint unloads on the spectators yeah. like it is can't just bystand yeah it, it's just uh like it's of course it's brutal you know watching it but like just kind of almost like you know thinking through 
you know, everything. Like it, it really, it really is just Clint just, you know, putting, you know, putting an end to that. Like, uh, he was, he was tackling toxic masculinity before, <laughs> anyone, before anyone else was willing to dare to touch it. It's his feminist Western. <laughs> Any final thoughts, JT? I mean, I think it's interesting comparing this to like, cause I feel like we've said before on the podcast, it seems like Clint has been making like final movies mm-hmm. for like, I don't know, the last maybe like 20 some yeah. years of yeah. his career. But it's interesting comparing this to like something like the mule that I feel like has sort of a mellowed out sensibility in terms of like reflection with the past. Like, obviously, like, I, I mean, I don't think we talk about it a terrible amount, but like Clint has clearly done some fucked up things in his life before. Mm-hmm. And through his work, he seems to be like kind of trying to reckon with that. And even made some movies that were a little more clear or a little less clear headed in the beginning of his career that yeah, I feel exactly. like he would want to repent for slightly. You yeah. Know? And I think what the questions that Unforgiven opens up like at the end there are so like brutal and bleak mm-hmm. where it's like when in the first half of the film Eastwood's character is telling himself no I've, I've changed I'm like a different I'm a good guy it's like you're not you're not really convinced of that either yeah. and then at the end by him just like going full full force back into it and like drinking and everything it's like I don't know it really calls into question ever being able to like change fully mm-hmm. or like reckon with your past in a meaningful way and I don't think we'll ever be able to reckon with our past, no matter how deep we bury it. So next week on the Patreon, we're going to talk about Stop or My Mom Will Shoot and Scent of a Woman. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know what we'll do on the Patreon next week, but uh, see you next week.